Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash YTE. This activity is supported by an educational grant from GSK PLC and CTI Biopharma Corporation. Welcome to this Peer Voice On Demand activity based on a recent live symposium. This video-based activity comprises four presentations. At any time during this activity, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. So, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Well done for making it into this session. So, first of all, I would like to welcome you to the CME Educational Symposium um, entitled Managing Myelofibrosis. Um, can we do more to address cytopenias, reduce transfusion burden and improve quality of life? So before we get started, um, please make sure that your cell phones are in silent uh, or vibrate mode as this event is being recorded. So I would like to uh, introduce you to the faculty. My, I'm Mary Frances McMullen from Belfast, as you can hear, a professor of haematology. Uh, my colleague, Professor Jean-Jacques Collagian from Paris, is here with us today. And our third faculty member is Professor Alexandra Vanucci, um, who unfortunately is unwell and therefore has not been able to join us. Um, however, we will have contributions from him as we go along, as we have been able to record some bits which we will embed within this. So, we're now going to start uh, the symposium. Um, where I want to talk first at our current approach to cytopenic myelofibrosis and what do our patients need. So myelofibrosis, um, we are well aware of. It's a really a complicated disease, which we understand, I would say, some of, but it's probably we're not really clear about all of it. But with myeloproliferation, uh, neoangiogenesis, stem cell mobilization, lots of proliferation, but also we end up with the secondary phenomenon of the fibrosis and osteosclerosis, inflammation, extramedullary hematopoiesis, lots of different things going on. And that gives us clinical manifestations, which we're well aware of, the, the splenomegaly, the cytopenias, uh, constitutional symptoms, and also complications. And we are well aware that the patients divide into different groups that some of them have a very proliferative picture, um, probably mo most often post-ET or PV, but we also have this group of patients who have a, 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 a very cytopenic picture. And this is, uh, was actually put together in a, 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 an educational symposium at NASH where you can sort of divide them up into the proliferative group and the cytopenic group. And the cytopenic group um, have obviously low blood counts, um, but they often have a higher risk of leukaemic um, uh, uh, transformation and actually fewer treatment options, which we're really going to talk about today. So what about these cytopenias? Uh, so the first one is anemia. Anemia is a problem for patients with myelofibrosis. Um, and this graph looks at a group of patients who have been anemic either um, immediately uh, or within a year or more than a year from diagnosis. And the point from this data is really 54% of the patients were anemic when referred 
and 25% of them required red cell transfusions at diagnosis. And this is a big retrospective data collection. Um, one year after diagnosis, nearly half the patients required red cell transfusions. And eventually, as perhaps you would expect as the disease progresses, nearly all patients require red cell transfusions. And there is some suggestion that red cell transfusion dependent portends leukemic transformation. So anemia is an issue. And this is a, a, another study looking at a large group of patients where they look at the survival depending on whether they're anemic uh, or not. And you can see patients who are not with myeloid fibrosis, who are not anemic, have a median survival of 7.9 years, whereas when you get down to the severe anemic, their median survival is much less at 2.1 uh, years. So anemia is a, a poor prognostic sign in myelofibrosis. The other thing that we associate with anemia is thrombocytopenia. And this, act, this actually is some data showing that patients who are an, a thrombocytopenic are often also more anemic, more likely to be requiring transfusion than those who are not uh, uh, anemic. And again, uh, this, this study looked at survival um, in patients depending on the platelet count. And in the blue is the patients with the platelets less than 50, whereas the red is in the, the top line is the patients with the platelets greater than 100. And again, you can see with severe thrombocytopenia, you're talking about an overall survival of about 15 months, whereas with normal platelets, you can get up to over 50 months. So thrombocytopenia, again, is a poor uh, prognostic sign. And then we get to what causes the anemia and thrombocytopenia. And uh, you can put together all the things together in a rather complicated slide. But if you look at the middle, you, the extramedullary uh, hematopoiesis and splenomegaly have big parts to play in this. But then there are other processes, the inflammatory processes, right down to iron metabolism and upregulation of hepcidin uh, as part of the anemia. Um, jack 2 therapy induced suppression, which we'll come to. And similarly with thrombocytopenia, the splenomegaly has some part of it and with platelet sequestration, um, but uh, there may be inadequate thrombopoiesis in extramedullary sites and then there are other issues with this. So there's, we don't know the full what causes the anemia and thrombocytopenia, but there are really many pathways um, involved. So that's where we are with the cytopenias and their bad prognostic factors. Let's think about this in, in, in just a little bit as introduction of treatment decisions and myelofibrosis. So the first thing we do, of course, is a patient risk assessment. And just to get it off the table at the beginning, you always have to consider, would, would this be a, transplant, a candidate for allogeneic uh, stem cell transplant? Um, and we've heard a lot in this meeting about who should be transplanted and when they should be transplanted and the outlooks. But the bottom line is that that's probably the minority of patients who can go down that pathway. And we're left with the majority of patients um, who need medical therapy, which perhaps may be a bridge to transplant at, uh, at some point in the future. But the majority of patients don't have a transplant option. The other issue that when we're going to go on to talk about management of cytopenia is uh, we need to think about is erythropoietin levels, because in clinical practice this is extremely important. Um, and I would contend that we need, on a patient with myelofibrosis, we need to see their erythropoietin level uh, up front if there's any question of them uh, anemic. And if 
their erythropoietin level is low rather than high, then um, there is an issue as to whether erythropoietin-stimulating agents may be useful in the management. Now, there's a good question about what's low and what's high. Um, What you're looking for is the patient who, if you give pharmacological doses of of erythropoietin, it may make a difference. This paper, which is the one that is quoted, looked and uh, showed that patients with erythropoietin um, levels of less than 125 were most likely to respond. But I think most people might take a cutoff for 200 or even 500, um, whereas above that, there's no point in thinking about erythropoietin. And that's the ones that we describe as adequate. We may have to go down different routes uh, for management of their anemia, like danazole. So that's a sort of introduction. Um, we now have the, the JAK inhibitors as therapeutic options in myelofibrosis, and Professor Kalagian is going to take over and discuss these a little further. Thank you very much, Professor McMillan. Obviously, as you know, the discovery of the JAK2 mutation was a huge landmark in the history of MF, and we thought at that time we had, that we had the key to cure the patients just like for BCR-ABLE1 in, in CML. Indeed, the story is a little bit more complicated, but it was an obvious target for therapy for these patients because besides the JAK2 mutation, as you know, the two other driver mutations, MPL mutations, calreticulin mutations, all of them result in an activation of the JAK-STAT pathway by activating for CALA, for example, the thrombopoietin receptor and MPL mutations, of course, obviously also activate JAK2 that is linked to MPL as well as to the EPO receptor and the GCSF receptor. So I will just discuss now first the two JAK inhibitors that have been approved by the EMA and that are available in Europe, uh, ruxolitinib and fedratinib, and the others will be discussed by Professor Vanuki in the next talk. So what about ruxolitinib? As you know, this drug provided now for more than 10 years a huge improvement in the management of patients by reducing the spleen volume, the so-called SVR, spleen volume reduction, and also improving the symptoms of these patients. So it's a deep impact on their quality of life. But as you can see, when we look on the long term, especially in the two seminal studies, COMFORT-1, that randomized ruxolitinib versus placebo, and COMFORT-2, that randomized ruxolitinib versus an active therapy, best available therapy. In both trials, after five years of follow-up, less than 50% of the patients are still treated with ruxolitinib. Why? Because some of them lose the response, and uh, there's a kind of reoccurrence of symptoms, re-increased in the spleen size, but also because of some adverse events. And among them, thrombocytopenia and anemia are probably very important, as you know, These events occur often at the beginning of the treatment, sometimes improve over time, but otherwise may also lead to treatment discontinuation. And indeed, in this large study published by Professor Palandri a couple of years ago, when we look at the predictors of ruxolitinib discontinuation, you see again that transfusion-dependent anemia and thrombocytopenia are key Uh, drivers of ruxolitinib discontinuation and highly significantly associated with uh, discontinuation of the drug. What happens after discontinuation of ruxolitinib in myelofibrosis? You know that can be a a kind of uh, rebound symptoms uh, of cytokinic rebound and and 
worsening of symptoms, but also the survival is usually very poor after this continuation of ruxolitinib in these patients if you don't have an active treatment uh, as a second-line therapy. And you can see, for example, that in this study, thrombocytopenia even worsened the prognosis of these patients with a median survival of about one year after ruxolitinib discontinuation. So we clearly need alternative treatments for these patients that do not tolerate because of thrombocytopenia or anemia treatment with ruxolitinib. What about fedratinib? You can see here the Jakarta study uh, result showing again very nice efficacy on the reduction of the spleen on the left panel in about 36% of patients. The dose that is approved by, uh, is 400 milligrams per day and also a nice reduction in symptoms. But again, if you look at the adverse events and the safety profile, anemia, thrombocytopenia, in addition to the well-known uh, risk of thiamine deficiency that may lead to neurological problems like vernicae encephalopathy, for example, but anemia, thrombocytopenia are also frequent uh, adverse events uh, with the use of this drug, leading sometimes to a treatment discontinuation. So altogether... Cytopenia in myelofibrosis is obviously driven by the disease itself and worsens over time with follow-up, but also is induced or worsened by the treatment sometimes. And JAK inhibition, JAK2, is a key uh, kinase for the hematopoiesis. So it's logical. It's an on-target effect. If you block JAK2, you will reduce the blood counts. It's, uh, it's not possible to avoid that. So... In summary, in patients with myelofibrosis, uh, cytopenias, anemia, thrombocytopenia mainly are key adverse prognostic factors and are inversely associated with quality of life and survival. And it remains a challenge to treat these patients. And especially management of cytopenic patients with MF is a clear unmet need. And we need new therapies that do not only improve splenomegaly and symptoms, but also improve cytopenia. So thank you very much. So um, we will now move on and hear a little uh, more um, about hope on the horizon. We're going to look at the emerging uh, approaches in treating cytopenic myelofibrosis. And uh, Professor Vanuki is going to present this session. So I think we can show the video now. Thank you, Professor McMullen, for the introduction. I'm happy to be here, even if I'm not physically here, with you and Professor Kiladijan, and I'm happy to be able to deliver this presentation uh, also uh, from, from my home. Uh, I'm focusing here on the novel therapies for patients with myelofibrosis, especially cytopenic patients. And as you can see from the slide, there's a number of agents that may belong to a PCL XL inhibitors that are epigenetic modulators, the inhibitor of telomerase and the ligand traps for transforming factor beta families of proteins. And all these are in clinical trials, but I will particularly focus on novel JAK inhibitors uh, that have shown to be active in patients with anemia and be able to be delivered in patients with thrombocytopenia, namely momelotinib and pacritinib. In this slide, a number of JAK inhibitors that are already approved for clinical use or are undergoing clinical experimentation are shown. Of course, we are well, all well experienced with ruxolitinib and fedratinib, 
that are JAK2 inhibitors. Ruxolizinib is also a JAK1 inhibitor. Paclitinib has been recently approved by FDA, and in addition to be a JAK2 inhibitor, this drug is also an inhibitor of activin receptor 1 and also of IRAC1. And finally, momelotinib, that now is still an investigational JAK inhibitor that has been shown to be an inhibitor of JAK1, JAK2, and activin receptor 1. So the mechanism of action of JAK inhibitors is well established since the very early studies with oxolitinib and the other JAK inhibitors. We know that JAK2 is an essential signaling pathway for cells that express receptors such as the EPOR, the MPL, the GCSF receptor, and activation of the receptor by the ligand on turn induces activation of JAK2 phosphorylation and phosphorylation of STAT protein, particularly protein of STAT5. This pathway is inhibited by all the JAK2 inhibitors. In addition, we know that other receptors, in particular for other cytokines, inflammatory cytokines, but also of interferons, signally preferentially through JAK1, and so the JAK inhibitors that are also JAK1 inhibitors, such as ruxolitinib and momelotinib, may be active by tampering the dysregulated JAKSTAT signaling that leads to overproduction of inflammatory cytokines, bone marrow fibrosis, and the systemic symptoms that characterize malofibrosis. And by that way, finally, they might produce the extramedullary hematopoiesis and the splenomegaly in patients with malofibrosis. But more recent data have also highlighted the possible relevance, especially for the control of cytopenias, of another signaling pathway that is mediated by activin receptor 1. And this is expressed on the cell membrane of hepatocytes and represents the receptor for BMP proteins that are able to modulate the levels of epshibin and by that way to uh, affect the metabolism of iron and dysregulated iron metabolism may contribute to the anemia of patients with malofibrosis. And therefore, inhibitors such as pacritinib and momelotinib, who are inhibitor of the activin receptor 1, may be active through this mechanism of action. So let's now go through the most relevant data that have been produced by clinical trials with some of these molecules. We will start, of course, with pacritinib, that is the latest among the JAK2 inhibitors that has been approved for clinical use. This is PESTIS-2 study, that is a randomized phase 3 study in patients with malofibrosis that had thrombocytopenia. The one entry criteria of the trial was to have platelet count less than 100. And as you can see from this slide, there was clear evidence with both dosage schedule to uh, an impact on the spleen volume reduction as compared to other best available treatment, as well as a, an improvement in total symptom score. In the BAT arm, there were also patients receiving ruxolitinib. And the more recent analysis that has been presented at the last ASH on the PERSIS-2 data uh, suggested that 
this impact on spleen volume and total symptom was also associated with a favorable changes in terms of anemia in these patients. So whether you use the most restrictive criteria, so-called simplified criteria, as compared to the Gale criteria, there was evidence of a significantly greater proportion of patients receiving pacritinib who became transfusion independent as compared to the BAT arm. And according to the most restrictive simplified criteria, these were 24% as compared to 5%. And the cumulative incidence of transfusion independence, as shown in the Kaplan-Meier plot, suggests that a proportion of these patients may have early benefit in terms of transfusion independence, but there are also other patients who might achieve transfusion independence even some months after starting the drug. And so this suggests that pacritinib may have significant impact on achieving transfusion independence, and some patients might must wait some time before this may happen. The safety profile of pacritinib is mainly represented by, as adverse events, thrombocytopenia and anemia, but these are not worse than BAT, while there is no other significant safety signal with the use of this molecule. In particular, we also have to underline the fact that all patients treated with PAC were actually thrombocytopenic. We know that, for example, ruxolitinib can be used in patients who have at least 50,000 platelets, but it's not recommended below this threshold of platelet counts. So in this analysis of the two PERSIST studies, PERSIST-1 and PERSIST-2, that was focusing specifically on patients who had less than 50,000 platelets, it was shown that also in this, let's say within brackets, difficult, category of patients, thrombocytopenic patients with malofibrosis, treatment with pacritinib was able to produce significantly benefits in terms of spleen volume reduction, improvement in the total symptom score, and also the proportion of patients who uh, reported the favorable impact from the treatment, what is called PGIC, patient global impression of change, were all significantly better with pacritinib as compared to the control arm. The other JAK inhibitor that is still in clinical trial is represented by momelotinib. Momelotinib has been used in three clinical trials, Simplify 1 and Simplify 2, where momelotinib against raxolitinib and against best available therapy, respectively. In Simplify 1, the drug was more effect, was non-inferior than raxolitinib in terms of spleen volume reduction, not, not significantly different, while it was the non-inferiority was not shown in terms of total symptom improvement. In Simplify 2, the drug was superior to BAT in terms of symptomatic improvement, and in both trials there was evidence of an impact on anemia, transfusion independence uh, rate. And, and these findings led to the momentum trial that is the phase three, and I will go to it in more detail in the next slide, 
So this slide shows the rate of transfusion independence that was achieved at the primary endpoint of 24 weeks. And as you can see, this was clearly in favor of treatment with momelotinib as compared to Danads. While the curves on the right part of the slide show that the improvement of hemoglobin levels of anemia with momelotinib was quite fast and was maintained over time. Furthermore, in the open label, a proportion of patients receiving danazol were shifted to momelotinib. And in, also in this group of patients, there were evidence of increasing hemoglobin level around 24 weeks after starting momelotinib. Again, a sub-analysis of the study focused on patients with thrombocytopenia. And by considering separately patients with platelets less than 100 and platelets less than 50,000, there was evidence that in both categories of patients, momelotinib was superior to danazol in terms of improvement in symptoms and also reduction of spleen volume and also in uh, reaching transfusion independence. But what is really uh, significant, I would say, in this challenging category of patient was the impact of momelotinib in terms of overall survival. Clearly, these are very preliminary data. However, they point to a better overall survival in patients with less than 50,000 platelets who are really difficult group of patients because their prognosis is really poor as compared to the control arm of Danazo. Momentum safety profile is shown here and, and this table shows that the expected main adverse events of momelotinib were represented by anemia and thrombocytopenia and of note there was no report of neuropathy that was actually uh, observed in the first trials with the drug. And so this is reassuring in terms of safety of using momelotinib in patients with malofibrosis. Among other agents that are in clinical trials, a mention is certainly for pelabrezib. Pelabrezib is being studied in a phase two study that is manifest with different arms. And without going into much details, pelabrezib has been used both in relapsed or refractory patients as add-on ruxolitinib in patients with suboptimal response or as single agent in a patient, sorry, in, in combination with ruxolitinib in patients who are JAK inhibitor naive. And the slide shows that in any of these different arms of the trial, there was significantly better responses with pelabrezib as compared to the other control uh, group of patients. The adverse events are represented by myelosuppression, in particular thrombocytopenia and anemia. There, there are some patients referring GI toxicity and a mild, uh, a mild increase in respiratory uh, infections. Luspatecep is one of the agents that is being developed specifically for patients with anemia due to its known mechanism of action. The drug has been approved also in other uh, situations with anemia, in particular in subgroups of patients with NDS. 
So a phase two study has been conducted with this agent and is now followed by a phase three study. The preliminary results from phase two study pointed to evidence of increase in hemoglobin levels that are su sustained over time in a significant proportion of patients and also achievement of red blood cell transfusions that ranged from 10% in cohort two that, that was of patients transfusion dependent without receiving RUXO to 32% in cohort 3B that was for patients with transfusion dependence that were receiving ruxolitinib. And so this drug might find its better positioning actually in association with ruxolitinib. So in summary, we have a number of drugs that may be impact of one of the most compelling clinical issues of patients with myeloid fibrosis that is represented by severe cytopenia. Is this an isolated red cell cytopenia with transfusion dependence, as well as a isolated thrombocytopenia or combined anemia and thrombocytopenia that happens in a significant proportion of cytopenic patients with malofibrosis. So clearly we have compelling evidence from persist and simplified study that two novel JAK2 inhibitors, namely pacrecnib and momelotinib, may have activity not only on the symptoms and the enlarged spleen, but also on cytopenics. Clearly, there are other drugs that may that appear prom promising and may be actually find a, a position in the clinical scenario of myelofibrosis. And so we can reasonably think that this compelling issue of cytopenias in patients with myelofibrosis might find quite early a positive response in terms of management with novel drugs. Okay, so thank you very much, Professor Fanuki, and I hope you make a speedy recovery. Um, so in our last session, uh, I will invite both my colleagues to share their thoughts on some key topics regarding the management of patients with cytopenic myelofibrosis. Um, and although Professor Fanuki won't be able to participate live with us. He's actually sent us his views on several of the questions, so we'll be able to uh, introduce those. Our first discussion point is how do you manage anemia? Um, we will discuss this, but we've asked Professor Vonicke, and I think if we play his answer first. Thank you, Professor McMullen, for, for these questions. Indeed, managing a patient with malafibrosis and anemia is not an easy task. First of all, I would like to rule out other possible causes of anemia, such as blood loss, deficiency of vitamins, and in particular, if there is an hemolytic uh, anemia. These are not so common, but they should be ruled out. Then the first approach is to use prednisone. That is usually not so much effective in very few patients, but sometimes it improves the symptom and especially the asthenia of these patients. And then I will try with, I will try erythropoietin, especially if the serum erythropoietin levels are low, as it has been discussed before. And uh, if this does not work, or if a patient has a response, usually this response lasts 6-12 months, and so uh, then I will try Danazol 
that may be affecting about 20% of the patients. Of course, we have to use the right dose of uh, Tanazol, that is 600 milligram per day, provided that there is no toxicity. And if we are patient enough for six months before seeing any impact of the drug. Thank you. So he really covered that very well and very much made the point of looking for other causes before uh, we start, which we really hadn't covered. Um, I'm not sure whether I would go for prednisolone first. I think we that's possibly a drug we neglect to use in the, in the measurement, and it's really very good in, in sort of terminal care situation. But in my opinion, I I'm maybe biased, but I would go down the EPO route first and then maybe move uh, to that. And then, of course, we have the issue of danazol. Uh, Jean-Jacques, would you co- like to yeah. comment on that? Because um, some of our on. patients don't like it. Sure. Uh, uh, Alessandro mentioned the dose. I think it's important to focus on that because it works usually at high doses, as he mentioned. 600 milligrams per day is usually not so well tolerated, but at least 400 should be the, the beginning dose. But Obviously, there are some contraindications. Some patients who mm-hmm. cannot have the drug, those with liver dysfunction, for example, mm-hmm. elderly patients with prostate problems, etc. Women also can usually mm-hmm. not tolerate high doses for a long time, so there are several limitations. But I would say that the momentum study gives us for the first time a kind of real view, prospective view of the response rate that is not so good, in fact, around 20% only. So it's not negligible, but it's not a big breakthrough. Yeah, so a, a range of options, but uh, it, there, there's no easy answer. Maybe a, a question for you. Do, you. do you change the dose of rexolitinib according to anemia, for example? Yeah. We didn't mention that possibility. No. Um, and, and we sent, may come to that when we get to newer agents. But I think this is a big issue. If you have a patient, not just do you change the dose, do you reduce it if they become anemic, but the bigger issue is somebody who's, just a bit anemic, do you start them on roxolitinib and make them transfusion uh, dependent, um, uh, which the patients don't like, or you know, do you hold off? I certainly have some patients that I'm holding off because I don't want to make them anemic, and I would certainly look at EPO levels, and often sometimes you would put somebody on EPO first to try and get their haemoglobin up a bit. Um, so it's, it's a difficult issue, anemia. Um, so our next question is even more difficult. <laughs> it is, uh, uh, I think it's fair to say, how do you manage thrombocytopenia? So again, if we see Alexandro's answer first. Thrombocytopenia is not so common as anemia. Probably no more than 15% of the patients with malofibrosis at the very beginning of their disease have thrombocytopenia. And usually thrombocytopenia is mild, it's around 30 to 50,000 platelets. So the, the main issue is, is the patient is bleeding, and in any case, the starting treatment is with prednisone. Very few patients actually have some improving platelet count. And so most of the approach is just supportive if the patient has really low platelet count and bleeding you can just support with platelet transfusions. Danazol may sometimes be effective, and so it might be worthwhile to try. The proportion of patients who respond to Danazol is definitely lower than patients with anemia. But in some cases, you might have significant increase in platelet count up to a safety level of 50,000, and this may, may actually last for some months. 
then we are really in need of active agents that may be used for patients with thrombocytopenia. And of course, the second aspect is thrombocytopenia that is related to treatment, in particular to JAK inhibitor. Okay, thank you. So Jean-Jacques, would you like to comment further? And I think we we probably need to be aware that the, certainly the licensed agents can't be used if a platelet count is, is below 50. We can comment whether that's what we actually do. Or yes, not. yes. sometimes I think since we have no other option uh, to treat these patients, we may use uh, ruxolitinib at very low dose, for example, mm-hmm. 5 milligrams BID to start with. Sometimes you shrink the spleen size, you increase the platelet counts. Uh, in my experience, it's not always successful and uh, it's difficult to maintain on the long term. But uh, do we have other drugs that may improve the platelet count in this situation? What is your experience, for example, with uh, thrombopoietin mimetics? Or... Yeah. So I haven't any experience, but as far as I'm aware, there's only been a small trial done which showed no effect. Mm. Um, uh, and it's, um, it, So there's no real evidence that they're likely to help, even if we had access to them. Maybe someone else could comment if they know more than that, but I, th- I don't think they're of use as we are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and sometimes emits also may help in few patients, yeah. thalidomide or revlimid mm-hmm. at low dose. And I think this the prednisolone issue remains yeah. one because, uh, as, as uh, Alexandra said, it was only 15% of the patients but at, at diagnosis, but thrombocytopenia is often a major problem at end-stage disease. Mm. And as he says, it's, if they're bleeding, there's a problem, then you're into supportive care. But prednisolone may well be useful in that situation as well. So, again, remains a, a difficult problem. And I'd say thrombocytopenia is an even more difficult problem. Um, what we want to talk about now is how do you actually improve the symptoms with cytopenic myelofibrosis? Because... If you remember back to the initial question, what do you want? What's the biggest problem? The majority of you said it was the symptoms. We're talking about treatments as we've come on to, but really, what can we do for the cytopenic myelofibrosis patients? Uh, I think, again, that thrombocytopenia is the most difficult Mm -hmm. situation because, as we said, the drugs we currently have, either we cannot use them or are too low doses that do not allow to improve the symptoms. So we clearly need new drugs in this situation. I think we will discuss that just Mm -hmm. in a few minutes. Uh, But uh, again, we can use the current drugs at low dose, Mm -hmm. usually not efficient, Mm -hmm. prednisone, some emits, etc. But it's really an unmet need. And what about anemia? (laughs) Well, I think, I mean, what this brings us to is what uh, the new treatments, as Alexandra was talking about, and where they can possibly fit in to help in that if you can give uh, uh, mostly JAK inhibitors of some sort that will be helpful with the cytopenia, um, but also will treat the symptoms. Because at the moment, ruxolitinib is mainly treating the symptoms, but we can't use it. So that brings us to um, what is the position for these new drugs. So this has been published um, and we can uh, think about this with the repositioning, I think that's a good way of putting it, of JAK inhibitors in myelofibrosis. So first line, um, we have uh, uh, 
picritinib for the platelets less than 50, um, fidratinib and ruxolitinib for the platelets between over 50, and then momolotinib. In this diagram, it's been put for red cell transfusion um, dependent. Um, and So that brings the issue of where these new drugs will come in and where they will be positioned. Um, I think the case for pacritinib in the thrombocytopenic will be very strong. Um, uh, and, uh, but I think what's interesting in this diagram is the momolotinib for the transfusion dependent. Now, I would say, do you take this further? If you have a patient who is a bit anemic and you have a choice between momolotinib and ruxolitinib, um, surely you're going to go for momolotinib uh, rather than something that's going to drop their haemoglobin. Um, so that, that would be the first sort of one where these drugs are going to come in and may well treat the symptoms but also be helpful with the cytopenia. What about second line then? Uh, for second line, it's clear that the, the diagram is quite relevant because what is the problem for second line? Do you need... Do, 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 does rexolitinib fail to reduce splenomegaly? Then, of course, we already have fedratinib. That can be a second line option, very efficient. For patients with anemia or thrombocytopenia, it's almost the same as the first line. But I would like maybe your comments about this, this new evidence of the activity of pacritinib against SCVR1 that was not <laughs> yep. re noted at the beginning of the development of the drug, but we know from the PERSIS trial that it may also improve anemia. Mm -hmm. We know that there's a co-occurrence of anemia and thrombocytopenia. Often they are linked mm -hmm. uh, in these patients. So could be also, maybe the position could be not only for trom purely thrombocytopenic patients, but also patients with both thrombocytopenia and anemia. What's your opinion on yes, that? Yes, I think yeah. that, I mean, the data looks very interesting. Um, and, um, of course, we have an issue of how they get licensed but, mm. but, but sure. um, uh, um, and approved. But I think that will certainly become an option. And, of course, like all these things, when you use a, when you try it in a few patients, you get more used to using it and you see what is effective. Some of us have gained experience up to this point through clinical trials mm. and we, we, we know... Uh, what looks to be effective. Um, the other bit we need to co comment on is this issue of combination therapies um, because we've heard throughout this meeting and a little bit of um, what Alexandra referred to that there are a number of trials looking at combination therapies. Some of these are, are, are look very promising. Um, I think you showed us some of the manifest data or mentioned the manifest data which there, you see improvements in the anemia and um, there are some options there, the erythropoietin and the imids and androgens, but is there, is, is there anything else you think we should be thinking about in that space? Yeah, I think since the publication of this, of this paper, Luspatacep probably is missing on the mm -hmm. anemia side, with, as Alessandro mentioned, the efficient, uh, this drug may be efficient in patients treated with ruxolitinib, maybe not uh, basically on anemia, uh, we also have Navitoclax that is missing on this slide. Could be also an interesting target, obviously, BCL-XL and BCL-2 pathways and uh, association with ruxolitinib. And, of course, I have to mention interferon. <laughs> that can be also a good partner for ruxolitinib, as we showed at ASH, for example, mm -hmm. the results of the Ruxopex study. So there are many combinations still that have to be validated mm -hmm. uh, as 
first or second line. Here they are only proposed as second line, but you, as you know, there are mm-hmm. several yep. trials ongoing as first line therapy. Mm-hmm. So can we avoid anemia by combining front, up front, you know, a, a, an anemia drug to ruxolitinib or another jack inhibitor yep. is also a question. Which is really the, this, the issue of if somebody's a bit anemic, what are you going to give them up front um, uh, to try and stop them becoming transfusion dependent? Um, so those are the issues where the cytopenia and where we go uh, from here. Um, this is open to the floor for discussion. Um, uh, please come to the microphone um, and state your question. And we've got one already. Thank you, Andres. I think there's a third problem, particularly in patients with platelets below 50, transfusion-dependent anemia at the end stage. We frequently see leukocytosis, 50,000, 70,000, 80,000, I mean, without really, I mean, blasts, 5 to 10%. And we have to consider maybe cytoreductive treatment in these patients, mm-hmm. for example, with hydroxyurea. How do you see this problem? Or how do you manage this problem? Okay, so the question is, what about leukocytosis uh, with anemia and thrombocytopenia? Um, I have to say, I tend to ignore it. (laughs) If I can can manage the other problems. Um, And certainly, I I mean, I'm always very wary of just treating a number. Um, But because we don't have good evidence of what a high white cell count. Now, patients have had very high white cell counts for long periods of time without any problem. Um, But um, it is very frightening when you see somebody with quite a high white cell count. And then, of course, when you put them on roxolitin, if their white cell count gets higher quicker. Jean-Jacques, do you do anything about it? No, I I agree. You try to to calm the patients because they are very stressed to see their blood count going up on one way and down for the other. Uh, lineages and as soon as you add something you worsen the anemia or the thrombocytopenia in particular hydroxyurea so like my Francis I try to hold as long as possible as long as there's no an increase in the percentage of blasts of source and uh, you're sure that the patient is not transforming but uh, it's a situation that is really difficult to manage hopefully not so frequent but may happen and the, the other problem is hydroxycarbamide because hydroxycarbamide, in my opinion, makes cytopenic yes, sure. myelofibrosis worse. It's very hard to manage mm. uh, in myelofibrosis. And in fact, if I have lots of ET patients, have lots of trouble with their cytopenias in uh, this. The other issue, of course, that we didn't address at all in this is the very neutropenic patient and they are very rare but they're a huge problem when they turn up because I think I've seen several people it's the sepsis from that has got them and of course the, uh, the only thing to put into that is GCSF but we that didn't come up but it is an issue for an occasional patient so anybody else have any question or comment um, you can put them in Slido or come to the microphone um, so while you're thinking of your question, um, there's a few things that have come up uh, here uh, uh, on the online. Um, I think we've covered this to some extent. Um, yeah, uh, to some extent, but I think it's probably maybe worth uh, re- uh, looking at again. Do you adjust the dose of ruxolitinib to anemia levels in a patient? Um, 
uh, and, and I think that that is quite a yeah. difficult question. Um, uh, I, I, I would say probably. In my experience, no, uh, mm -hmm. because when you start ruxolitinib, you have a target that is usually not anemia, mm -hmm. but you want to reduce the spleen size or improve the symptoms. And we know that uh, reducing the spleen size in a sufficient level is associated with better survival and better long-term outcomes. So the main objective when you start rux, obviously, is not anemia. So I do not consider anemia as a reason for changing the dose. And if the patients need to be transfused, we transfuse the patients mm -hmm. for a few months, uh, but we need alternatives. Yeah, and, and if you follow the SPC, yes. you, pro you probably yeah. should, and it's quite hard to get people who are do not doing a lot of that to put the ruxolitinib dose up to get sure. the maximum spleen response to mm. get that. Um, I think Professor Powell has a question. Hi, yes, I was wondering, if you have a newly diagnosed patient, do you no, or do you have a feeling for, depending on the driver mutation, if it's Calaramipal versus JAK2, whether they'll have a higher chance of going into cytopenias? So the question is, do, does the driver mutation um, dictate in any way whether they'll become cytopenic? Now, there are overall prognostics uh, information ex uh, associated with that, but I don't think so. Yes, I, I, I'm not sure also what, what we can say, for example, is the post-ET or post-PV myelofibrosis, secondary myelofibrosis usually have higher counts uh, and are less anemic, especially the post-PV or less thrombocytopenic, the post-ET myelofibrosis, and this may be linked to the presence of certain mutations like color mutations, for example. So maybe there's an impact, but I'm not aware also if there's a clear study yeah. showing a, a clear difference for this particular link between driver mutation and occurrence of cytopenia. I think there's a, there's a lot more work to be done on the long-term follow-up of patients with individual driver mutations. I personally think all the young people I see who have myelofibrosis at 50 have had ET with a CALR mutation 20 years earlier. But, you know, we, we don't... We don't, uh, not all, that's obviously an exaggeration, but there's a group of patients, but we don't have that sort of truly long-term patterns mm -hmm. um, of disease. Um, but there are some data about the JAK2 allele burden that mm -hmm. may be different between cytopenic and non-cytopenic patients, uh, especially link between lower allele burden in, in cytopenic patients that we also know are more difficult to eradicate, uh, particularly with interferon, you know, heterozygous cells and cell, uh, patients with low allele burden usually respond less to, to this type of treatment. So there's something there between the driver mutation, either the allele burden or the type of mutation and cytopenia. Thank you. And there's another question online, which sort of links into this a bit, and I think we're going to come back with another no, we don't know answer. Um, if your patient had mild anemia diagnosis, how likely it is, is it that they will develop severe anemia and is it possible to predict this? And I think that's what we've been referring to. You know, what do you do about the patient whose haemoglobin's 10 or 9 before you start them on a treatment? To the best of my knowledge, apart from the overall predictors, you can't really predict on an individual patient um, you know, who's going to get severe anemia and who's not, but you do know, as we've said, with lots of experience about ruxolitinib, that you know people will drop their hemoglobin and then it will plateau a bit. But that's the problem. Can you get them down to the the plateau? Um, 
And uh, you also do see some patients with good haemoglobins, and you put them on these drugs, and their, their haemoglobin goes right down. So, but I don't think you can predict. No, I, I agree. Uh, what, what we still have to keep in mind always is that, you know, there's a difference probably between early cytopenia mm-hmm. and late cytopenia mm, yes. in the treatment. And always think when it's early, usually it's due to the drug, it's mm-hmm. uh, adverse events of the drug. When it's occurring late, we always have to be sure that there's no progression of the disease and maybe time to do another biopsy just to check for that and always search for alternative causes. Alessandro mentioned that for the anemia. Uh, is there some hemolysis that may occur in about 10-15% of patients? Thrombocytopenia, is there a peripheral mm-hmm. cause sometime? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and what about uh, splenectomy? Because oh, yes. you, you, can, you find sometimes in papers that splenectomy uh-huh. can be... Uh, a solution? Is yeah. it your opinion? Or? Yeah, so I think that's a, a very interesting question. I'm very old, as somebody said, <laughs> way back. If people like this, you did a splenectomy. There was then a paper published uh, some years ago that suggested that a splenectomy led to increased progression to, to transformation to leukemia, which put everybody off doing splenectomy. I don't think that was particularly true. But the, the issue is that I think since the JAK inhibitors come along, I can't remember the last splenectomy I've sent anybody for. Uh, whereas previously, some of these people who were very transfusion dependent, if you did a splenectomy, I can think of one person way back who got years without transfusion. So uh, I think it's disappearing um, because the JAK inhibitors have been so effective at shrinking the spleen. But I suppose there will be an issue. I mean, we, we haven't touched on the thorny question of what's relapsed progression Um, but there will be an issue you know if people progress and their spleens get big enough do you do a splenectomy the other problem of course is that we're usually so cytopenic and we used to do radiotherapy to the spleen Mm. if we could possibly get it in uh, with with the cytopedia but overall i haven't done a splenectomy or sent anybody for splenectomy in years it's time to yeah okay oh We need to finish, but we'll have one one. quick question. Uh, Someone earlier in the meeting commented on ASA, low dose, uh, combining with rooks in that cytopenic patient with low stable blast, and they uh, showed like a little bit of cytopenic cytopenic response. Do you have any experience or comment on that? I don't really have any experience except that that to me is treatment for... for, uh, for leukemia, for a, you know, you're going into mm. a leukemic type process. I, I, yeah. I, this group of patients. I don't remember who commented. Yeah. Low mm. dose. Yeah, mm. I think it was. They're probably looking at the at the blast, progression. the mm. progression. Okay, we are over time, which is good that we have plenty of discussion. Um, we, I think we've had a, a, a very interesting symposium and good discussion. With take-home messages, I think the main take-home message is that there are new drugs coming and they're going to change our treatment um, paradigm and at least provide some help with the cytopenias. Um, and the interesting bit will be exactly where they're positioned and how they get. Uh, any other take-home messages? No, I, you perfectly summarised the discussion. Thank you. Okay, so thank you very much, everyone. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.